this morning I'm going to be sharing from Matthew 28, 11 to 20. You can turn there. Um, but first I want to tell you just a little bit about this summer we had an experience. My, my family and I uh, had a memorial service. We attended a memorial service for my grandparents. My uh, 98-year-old grandfather was the, the last one who passed away last year, and so we commemorated their lives. They're wonderful, godly people, and it was just great to celebrate what the Lord had done through them and in them. And, um, and when we were out there, I, I remembered, this is Pennsylvania, I remembered that my grandfather, he was a, he was a carpenter by trade, and he built the house that they lived in for many years on a lake. He was at the top of this huge hill. And, uh, and I remember going there as a boy and, and him teaching me how to fish, me and my brother. And um, the experience of learning how to fish was great, but it was definitely easier said than done in a lot of ways. I remember a lot of the messes that sort of came up as I learned. For example, putting the worm on the hook. That was probably the least favorite part for me. It was really slimy, and I could never quite get it on there. A lot of times, my little fingers had trouble tying the fish line on the hook to begin with. Sometimes the hook would actually poke me, and I'd, I'd bleed. Um, and you'd think that by the time we got all that taken care of, that things would be sort of smooth sailing, but even casting the line sometimes was a bit of a pain, and would, the line would get tangled up. Um, it was altogether easier said than done. And then, when, you find, when I finally got the baited hook in the water, even watching the bobber was challenging. You know, sometimes it would just be wakes from a boat that was passing by that made me think, oh, that's a fish, and it wasn't. Sometimes a fish would nibble and I wouldn't get it. But no matter what the challenge, my grandfather was there. He knew what the problem was. He knew how to help me solve it. And he was there with me in my time of need. And the reason I tell you that story is because that's a little bit of what we're going to see in today's text in Matthew 28. Jesus talks about himself in similar language as to my grandfather. He has all authority. He knows exactly what's going on. He has all power in all situations. And he's with us even until the end of the age. He's near us. He's patient in our weakness all the way until the end. So Matthew 28 is a text that most of us who have been Christians for any amount of time will probably have read a few times. And in fact, it might be so familiar that you, you might be um, tempted to kind of check out. But I'd encourage you to think today about what the Lord has for you in this. I was, as I was reflecting on this text, I was thinking, you know, knowing what a text says is really all about what happens in your mind. But what we're here to have happen is for the Spirit of the Lord to affect us in our spirit. So really knowing what a text says is just step one. What we need is the Spirit to come and move in power in our hearts. And when we come to the text expectantly, when we say, Lord, what do you have for me here? I know what the text says, but I want to know what you have for me. Well, at that point, the Lord really moves. So let's ask the Lord what he has for us. Let's come to the text expectantly today. Um, the text is, in a nutshell, I'm just going to overview it really quickly, then we'll read it, and then we'll kind of dive in. 
the text that we're focusing on is right after the resurrection scene, and it contains two snapshots. The one snapshot is, has to do with the response of the guards. You'll remember the guards see the angel, and they fall down, um, and then they go to the chief priests and talk about it. And the other is that of the disciples. So this passage happening right after the resurrection, in a sense, it's like two responses to the resurrection. It's like two different competing worldviews at work. There are those that follow Jesus, and there are those that don't. And of course, those that follow Jesus, they base their whole existence on Jesus. The historical resurrection of Jesus just changes their lives. But this text, really in the end of the day, isn't just about history. You might even say it's not mainly about facts in history. The main battleground in this text is a spiritual one, not an intellectual one. We'll talk about that more in a few minutes. One other helpful piece of background information that you might not have thought of is when Matthew's gospel was written. It's probably written sometime in the 65 to 85 AD range. And if you know what happened in the first century there, it should get you to reflect on this, this passage a little bit differently because a whole slew of prominent Christian leaders had just been martyred. Think of people like Peter, Paul, I mean, these were big leaders, important leaders, gone. So in that, te- in that situation, a text like this, a passage like this, wouldn't have just read, and Jesus said, all authority in heaven and on earth had me, has been given to me, I am with you. It would have probably read something like, don't forget, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Don't forget, even in spite of what you see, I am with you, even until the end of the age. We have to remember the Lord's authority and presence, Jesus' power and nearness, his sovereignty and goodness. This was Jesus then, and this is the Lord Jesus today. Let's pray together, and then I'm going to read the text before we dive in. Lord, we pray that you would open our eyes. Help us to see, help us to see the, tech, the, the, the Word of God with spiritual eyes today. Get our attention, Lord, by your Spirit. Bring it in power in our lives and change us as a congregation. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to invite you to stand up and read. I did not put the text on the PowerPoint. Sorry about that. Um, and I'll be reading from the ESV here, um, So um, just so you know. And we're starting in verse 11 of Matthew 28. While they, that's the women, were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, tell the people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we'll satisfy him and keep, him out, keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, 
All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. You may be seated. So verse 11 starts here. While they, the women, were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests. So the angel, as I said earlier, has just appeared. The women saw and are ecstatic. They're beside themselves. And the guards pass out. The women then saw Jesus. And we don't know if the guards saw Jesus or not. But then both Mary Magdalene and the other Mary, they left. And so did the guards. And the guards, as they were going, they thought... We've got to tell our boss about this. We've got to tell the chief priests what's, what happened here. Now, it doesn't tell us if they went away thinking, hey, let's think up a lie and spread it around, and that'll kind of help keep us out of trouble. That, it says that, they, that it was probably the chief priest's idea. But what the guards then knew what any guard would have known then, and that is that they had failed. They didn't do their job. They didn't do what they were sent to do to guard the tomb, and so they were probably going to be put to death. Their necks were on the line. So you might say, here we have these guards, and there's kind of two competing truths, two things that they know are going to happen one way or the other, um, or could happen. One is, they, they saw the angel, they know that happened, they fainted as a result of it. The other is, they're probably going to die. Pilate is going to kill us. So what do they do? They choose to save their own skin. They choose to put themselves in the hands of the chief priests to be saved rather than the Lord who sent the angel. Let's look at the chief priests for a moment. They decide to mastermind this huge lie. They make up a falsehood. They even bribe the guards to kind of hold the line on the lie. And it was so effective that up until the time of Matthew's writing, that lie was still the predominant way that people were explaining the empty tomb. It all makes a very important point to us. All that we're seeing right here is really something that we, that we shouldn't, it shouldn't pass us by, and it's, number, it's point number one of the message this morning, and that is that faith in Christ is first and foremost a spiritual thing, not a cognitive thing, or it isn't primarily a cognitive intellectual thing, or simply a matter of getting the right information. If it was, every university religion professor would be a believer, in my opinion. They all, they, they've got all the information, they study it all, they research it all, but you don't find that to be the case. Faith in Christ isn't simply about right information. Obviously, right information is huge. It's very important. But worldviews are, are the background. Our worldviews shape what we do with the facts. And it makes sense, doesn't it? Human beings are messy. We're complicated creatures. We're so complicated that our worldview can take the most history and eternity-shaping event like this and choose a bribe instead. So belief in Christ isn't primarily about facts, but it's spiritual. 
Facts are important. But if you think that the problem with the world today is simply a matter of wrong information or simply a, a cognitive deal, then I think we're focused a little on the wrong thing. The problem with the world today is a spiritual problem. It's spiritual darkness. The reason you and I believe in Christ isn't because we were smarter than, than unbelievers. It's not because we just happened to stumble across the right set of facts. It's because the Lord opened our eyes. Here in the U.S., it's kind of, in my opinion, I haven't, I haven't asked Carmela if she feels the same way, but it's kind of easy to think that if we share the gospel in the right way or just give the full facts of the matter, then it'll change everything. This is, um, but in living, living abroad, it's a lot easier for some reason to remember that there's a spiritual cloud over everyone you talk to. And not only is there a spiritual cloud that the, the, the Holy Spirit has to cut through to bring the truth and power, but actually, I can't even trust the way that I share the gospel myself to sort of deliver the facts in the clearest and, uh, clearest and easiest way to understand. Abroad, it's a lot easier to remember there's more than meets the eye. There's more than what's going on here on the surface. But that whether we, whether we live abroad or whether we live back in the U.S., actually, the situation is 100% the same. We can't do anything, but it's the Lord who opens our eyes. And it's a lot like the passage in John 9 where we have the man born blind. And I love it because he said, when they, started pester, when they start uh, pelting him with questions, he said, you know, I don't know what happened. All I know was that I, is that I was blind, but now I see. Now, the reason I, I sort of tease all this out is because I think we should really leave from this point really encouraged as, as a people here today. Because when you remember that it's the Lord's responsibility to bring people to him, it's the Lord that has to work here. It's not my efforts that really matter in the end. Well, it helps us to approach conversations about the gospel. It helps us to approach our neighbors in a really, with, with a lot more freedom. To bring the gospel to them, to say, here's the Lord. Here's the Jesus that I trust. What do you think? And, and to leave the results to him. It also, I think, helps us to think about our, uh, how we approach our neighbors. And um, as we remember that facts are foundational and important, but not the only thing at work there, it helps us to perhaps consider asking our neighbors or asking our coworkers or asking people that we bump into questions that might be a little bit more subjective in nature rather than simply questions about objective fact. Like, for example, do you really think your life has significance? Tell me about how you feel about life right now. Or what do you think about the meaning of life? These are subjective questions. Or how do you, this is a big one where we live, because people are really worried about their children and what will happen when they grow old, and will they, will they get the job that they need, since it's only one child in many families, will they get the job that they need to support the parents in their, in their, um, in, in their latter years? 
We'll say, well, how do you feel about your children's future? Are you concerned? Growing up in such a difficult world, growing up in such a difficult economy, sometimes we begin with questions like this, and it actually, instead of, an assertion of, as an, instead of beginning with an assertion of facts, with a question rather of the deeper meaning that somebody senses about life, as we do this, we can often see things in their lives. We can see lies that they're believing. We can see what really matters to them. And we see those things in such a way that it helps us understand a little bit more, a little bit more clearly how the gospel can apply, how the gospel can meet their need, how the gospel can meet them just where they are and bring darkness into light. So Christians here really ought to take encouragement in that way from this passage. The unbelief of our neighbors, as I mentioned earlier, co-workers, family members, it's ultimately a spiritual thing. And your responsibility, my responsibility, it's to open our mouths and testify to the, the goodness of the Lord as he gives us opportunity to do so. We see the angel kind of bringing a testimony in the passage that we didn't read that part, but the angel sort of brings a testimony of what happened, and we have two totally different responses. Now, texts like this show us that evangelism, in the end, is not primarily, it is primarily about testifying to God and is not primarily about what happens. Obviously, the Great Commission is about what happens. The Great Commission is about bringing the gospel to all nations. The point I'm making is that it's not about you. It's about him. And the testimony that we bring doesn't necessarily even always have to be the full gospel. That is, we're created for God. We sinned and fell away from God. Jesus died for our sins to bring us back to God, and he invites us into, into new life with him. Sometimes just saying the name of the Lord is in itself a little testimony. Let me give you an illustration. Not too long ago, this actually happened uh, very quickly after we, um, after we arrived. So it was here in, in Minneapolis. I met a, an unbeliever, and he and I had like a, an hour-long conversation. I was getting eaten up by mosquitoes the whole time, so I remember. But it was a great conversation. And, and this fellow had a person that helped him with his gardening, gardening, and then also a neighbor, both of whom he knew were Christians. And it was really interesting at one point in the conversation because he was talking with me, who he knew, who, who he knew didn't live in, in the U.S., and he has this gardener, he knows he's a Christian, he knows a neighbor, and, and he was like, now, I know several Christians here, and I expect Christians like you to talk about your God and talk about Jesus every, uh, regularly, actually. In fact, my gardener helps, helps me, help me understand that because she'll come over and She'll maybe ask me questions here and there. She'll say, praise the Lord, or um, I'm so blessed to have had this happen, or something like that. Whereas my neighbor, I have spent so much time with them. I have gone around their house helping them fix things. I've, I've helped them this way and that, and we, we've spent so much time together, and I've never even heard them mention the name of the Lord. And that left an impression on me. Left me, because sometimes we, we, we get into the, we sort of gear up for talking to others about the Lord, and we put a lot of pressure on ourselves, but it really doesn't have to be that way. And it's really not about any of us individually anyway. It's about him. There's a proverb, uh, a Chinese proverb that I know, and it goes, and what it basically means is just chuck something out there and see what happens. 
It's like that English idiom, you know, throw it, and see, throw it against the wall and see if it sticks. You know, this is a lot of what it means to be a light in our community, and I find it really encouraging. If, if you're here today and you're seeking the Lord, or you're kind of trying to investigate what it means to be a follower of Christ, I think you could take an encouragement from this passage too. Because as you evaluate Christ, as you, as you come and get to know what it means to follow Christ, you have to remember that you're, you're fundamentally a spiritual being. You're not just a brain walking around objectively assessing facts. And so as you assess the Bible, as you look at the Bible and, and, and look at its truth, you have to remember that Christ isn't just true, he's real. Christ isn't just right, he's good. Christ didn't just raise from the dead. He raised to raise people like you from your spiritual death and bring you into the new life that you were created for. So if you, are, if you fall into that category, if you're, if you're looking, at what, looking into what it means to follow Christ, I just encourage you to pray today that the Lord would help you as a spiritual person to respond like the women who, who were just beside themselves with excitement, not like the guards who run away and really end up basing their whole lives on a paper-thin lie. So point one has been, from verses 11 to 15, has been faith in Jesus is first and foremost a spiritual matter. The last two points are both going to come from verses 16 to 20 of this text. Point two is, Christ is maturing us even in our weakness. Christ is maturing us even in our weakness. Now, the weakness to which I refer is primarily spiritual weakness in the body. And it could be what you face as an individual. It could be, could be what the church faces as a whole. And I get this from verses 16 to 17. It says, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them, and when they saw him, they worshipped, but some doubted. At the beginning of the uh, chapter, the, the angel and Jesus told the women in verses 7 to 10, go to Galilee. So here we have the disciples obeying. They're on their way to Galilee. Their feet are going, but their hearts are lagging. They saw him and worshipped, and it says, but some doubted. Now, the, the original language isn't all that clear about how, you know, who is it that was doubting, and were they, was it everyone worshipped, but everyone struggled with a layer of doubt in it? Was it some worshipped and others doubted? We don't really know. But I actually don't think it really matters that much. The point is, we have a believing community that's obeying the message to go to Galilee, and mixed into this group, we have doubt popping up somewhere. So this doubt was, of course, experienced personally. You have somebody looking, even as they looked at Jesus, they doubted. Um, but then that personal doubt sort of affects the whole body. And that, that is how it always is, isn't it? It made me think of Thomas in John uh, 21, John 20. 
You remember, you know, Thomas is known as a doubting Thomas. Poor guy. You know, this is his, this is his reputation for, forever, yet he gave the most wonderful testimony to, to Jesus after he got over his doubts. But have you ever thought before how his doubts might have affected the community that he was in? You know, he wasn't just sort of off in a corner all by himself doubting. He was in the midst of them, and they were like, you should have seen it. He, 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 came, he, he came among us. He was right here. And he's like, sorry, I don't believe it. You guys must have been seeing things. And he must have repeated this. It went on, went on for days until Jesus reappeared and Thomas believed. Wow, that must have been a challenge, not just for Thomas, but for the whole group. And this is what we really have in Matthew here. At least some were worship, uh, some uh, everyone was worshiping, but and at least some among them were doubting. Now, again, Park, I think we ought to take encouragement from this, because we can look not just the ch- at, at the church in the uh, in our century or in the centuries that have recently gone by. We can look at the church all the way back to the first century and see that the church has always had weakness mixed in it. Makes sense. We as individuals have always had weakness mixed in us. So there's never been a weakness-free or a challenge-free church. There's never been a local church without doubts and disputes and trials and opposition, quibbles, anger, division. Scripture really, in a sense, in this passage in particular, normalizes this. It normalizes challenges both for the individual and for the body whether it's doubts or fears or relational conflict or weariness that all seem to work their way in and chip away at our worship of Jesus. This is normal. And of course, we should do all we can in us with the power that he gives us to work these things out and to, and to uh, fight the fight of faith. But we can't ever remember or can't ever forget, we must always remember that this is called a fight of faith for a reason. I can briefly share with you a, a, a very difficult challenge that we faced where we live. We, we had just gotten through a, a really challenging um, uh, situation where, where we were visited by the authorities and, uh, and we were dispersed and, and we're trying to figure out what to do. And in that situation, I had never seen it before, even though we had had similar challenges prior to that, everyone responded differently. Some people were emboldened, and they're like, we need, to, we need to push against this. Other people stood in the middle and thought, we need to pray about this and act as prudently as we can. Other people were freaked out and didn't know what to do and were kind of so scared that you could tell that, they were, that this was sort of paralyzing them a little bit. And in that situation, wow, was it challenging. Wow, was it difficult. It really required so much prayer. And initially, I thought, I didn't expect this at all, but I should have expected this. Because no matter what, whether we're here or whether we're there, whether we're facing something big or facing something little, problems are normal. Challenges are always going to be here this side of heaven. And the question is not, will we have them? The question is, what will we do with them? Now, of course, the New Testament is written as a huge answer to the question, what will we do with challenges? How do we face challenges, both as a body and as individuals? 
But the short answer that this, this passage today gives us on facing challenges has to do with what Jesus says. Jesus says two things that ought to grab our attention in the verses to come. It says, Jesus has all authority and he is with us. That means that Jesus has authority to mend our weakness in the end. And I, I really like Philippians 1.6 um, as a paraphrase that rolls both the authority and the nearness of Jesus into one. It says, he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. So it means that Jesus, like my grandfather, he's behind us. He's supporting us. He knows what's going on, and he's near us. He's with us. And it means that we as a body of believers, our weakness as we pass through trials, weakness is being slowly burned up like dross, it says this in 1 Peter, and is leaving gold and silver and precious metals that result in praise and glory and honor when Jesus is revealed. We can take real encouragement from that. So point one was faith in Christ, faith in Jesus is first and foremost a spiritual matter. Point two, Christ matures us in our weakness. Point three is really the sort of culmination of everything I want to talk to you about today, and that is that following Christ is practicing his authority and presence personally and together. Now, I realize that talking about practicing the authority and presence of Jesus is a little bit of an odd way of, of talking. I'm going to spend the last, a few minutes in the last part of this sermon explaining kind of what that means, but when I say practicing, in a nutshell, what I'm talking about is we should exercise or work out, draw out, or massage into our lives the very things that Jesus said about himself. That is, his authority, his presence. How does that affect me today? Not how does that affect my whole life. That's a big question. We all have to answer that one. But I'm talking about how does that affect us today? Now, I'm going to briefly take us to two other passages. I, I noted them on the screen up there, but, I, but I, I'm just going to read them for you. I didn't uh, put them on the PowerPoint. One that talks a little bit more about how this works out in us as a body, and the other, how it works out among us as kind of individuals in our individual fellowship. So Matthew 18, 15 to 20, this is a well-known passage on church discipline. So it's really interesting that authority and presence come up in this passage. It says, if your brother sins against you, and go and show him, your, show him his fault just between the two of you. If he listens to you, you've won your brother over. But if, he, but if he will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, then tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, treat him as you would a, tax, a pagan or a tax collector. I tell you the truth, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, I tell you that if two, if two of you on earth agree about anything you ask for, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. For where two or three come together in my name, there am I with them. So you have, the whole thing starts off with two Christians that have problems. 
They have issues, or at least one of them has an issue with the other and goes and brings it to that person. But then, but then the whole matter grows into a whole church deal. In verse 18, we have this matter of binding and loosing. This refers to the authority of the Lord among us as a people. But in the end, it's really surprising to me that Jesus says, for where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I with them. So the presence of the Lord is with us when we carry out even really difficult things as a congregation, both in little interpersonal squabbles that don't go anywhere, they just get worked out all on their own, or in huge, difficult, weighty church matters, Jesus is with them. So his authority, his power, it's both there. They're both there. In Colossians 3, 15 and 16, so a shorter passage, and it goes, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another in all wisdom with songs, hymns, and spiritual songs. Rule is the authority of Christ, even in our hearts as individuals. Dwell, the, the word dwells with us. Christ is with us as a church by his word as we encourage one another, just with words, just, at, just during fellowship time, just at, in between, even when we're greeting one another. He is with us. So in a nutshell, you could summarize it this way. The authority of the Lord says, in the name of Jesus and by the power of the Spirit, this situation can change. And if God wills, I can be an agent of change in this situation. The presence of Jesus says, in the name and by the power of Jesus, I can be a spiritual encouragement in this situation. So authority and presence both ought to be a part of of our lives as individuals, our lives as a body um, at every point. In our context in East Asia, churches are often forced to stay small. I'm talking like 30 or 40 members, that small. And it makes this sort of practicing the authority and presence a little bit easier, I should say. You know, here at Park, you guys are still in, you know, you're mid-size, I guess. You're definitely not a, a big church, and so I'm, I'm thankful for that because just because big churches have prob- or challenges that come along with being really, really big. But I will say, as you grow as a church, as, as members come in the doors, um, the more you grow, this sort of peace of Christ ruling, word of Christ dwelling, this tandem is going to be something that, that, as a church, you have to be more and more intentional about. This sort of authority and presence type of fellowship is something that's going to be easy to miss the bigger you get. And it just means intentionality. Now, here in today's, in today's uh, text, Matthew 28, I'll bring you, we'll, we'll go back there real briefly before we close. Jesus declares his authority and presence in the Great Commission. Sandwiching the Great Commission, though, which we all know, go and make disciples of all nations, we have authority and presence. And we talk a lot about the go, don't we? We talk a lot about the make disciples, but we talk perhaps less about the Lord of the go, the Lord of the mission. We talk a lot about the job and perhaps less about the Jesus. I heard one pastor say not long ago, we talk a lot about the mission and sometimes less about the master. The Lord, though, is our only hope in fulfilling any task. But even so, have you ever noticed 
that this great commission, which I, I don't know about you, but I often think is something we do out there, making disciples is really the only thing that happens outside of the fellowship of the church in the Great Commission. Baptizing, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded, they take place at least in some respect in the local life of the body of Christ. So you might say that authority and presence, the authority and presence of Christ, you could at least say that they're needed both inside and outside the church, or they're needed every bit as much in our life as a body as we need the authority and presence of Christ in going. Lastly, I could say his authority and presence are clear, as clearly seen in here as they are out there. So we don't, therefore, look at our circumstances primarily. We don't take those as and we might look at our circumstances and say, what on earth is going on in this situation or that? But rather, the main thing we ought to do, no matter how perplexed we are at circumstances, is to look to the one who has authority over those and who has promised to be with us. You see that we really need to take this to heart. And I guess take to heart is another way of saying practice. It's another, it's another word to describe what I'm trying to get at here. All authority has been given to me. Now, there's a, lot of, there's a lot of different ways that the Lord could be applying this to your heart this morning. There's a lot of different applications that I hope that you take away. And, but there's one that, to me, jumps as clearly sort of out of this text as, as any other. And that is, if you really take to heart that the Lord is, a, is the authority and he's with you, then one thing that's going to definitely be different in your life is you're going to pray a lot more. Now, why do I focus in on prayer? It's because all authority that is over everything and he's with me always, they're so pervasive that all you can really say is, wow, the average the average Christian, myself included, I really see very little at this point about how, how, how authoritative he is or how much he is really with me. And I really want to see more, don't you? I really want the Lord to open my eyes and show me how he's with me. This opening of our eyes is what I pray he does among us. This opening of our eyes is what I pray he does through helping us practice his authority and presence. And if we look to him, and the last little metaphor I'll bring, bring, bring out is from 1 Corinthians 13. Do you remember that passage that says, now we look in a mirror darkly, but then we shall see face to face. Now we know in part, then we shall know fully. Well, if that's really how, it, how it's working, and we are from uh, looking at him through a glass darkly to seeing him face to face with no obstruction at all. It's a little like I was cleaning, cleaning windows uh, a, a couple weeks back, and you know, sometimes it takes several, it's so dirty, it takes several wipes to kind of get a, a, a window reasonably clean. You know, the Lord, by his spirit, is wiping off the window of our hearts so we can see Jesus with ever-increasing clarity. And this is what sanctification is all about. This is what it means to follow him. And so we can pray today as a church that he does this among us. I opened today's sermon with my illustration about my grandfather teaching me 
to fish and everything. And one thing I didn't mention in that illustration at the time, though, is that a lot of times during the experience of learning how to fish, I found myself so focused on the problems of, of baiting the hook or tying the hook or cast, casting the line that I would even forget he's here. And we find, I find uh, Carmela and I find ourselves doing that on the, uh, on the field as well. Sometimes we can get so focused on what's going on in our, in our locality, what's going on in the news, what's, how is this going to affect that, or what's, how's this person reacting versus that. You forget that the Lord is there. You can forget, you can be so focused on your problems that you forget that he's with you. But in those situations where I was learning how to fish, I would remember when he would come behind me with his big hands and he would grab my hands like this to, to help write, write what I was doing. And in those moments, I, I, I startled. But in those moments, I remembered my grandfather's been standing behind me the whole time. It's my hope for us as a church. It's my hope for each of us as individuals that we would be increasingly aware of his authority and presence among us and not be surprised, not be startled. And as we would, that we would be ever more prayerful and expectant of what he's doing here in Minneapolis, over in East Asia, not as a child like I was, forgetting that he's there, forgetting that he's in control, but rather as someone who knows his authority and knows his presence and prayerfully expects to see him show up. Prayerfully asks, Lord, show me what you're doing so that I can join in. Let's pray together. Lord, that is our prayer. And as people who see you in a glass darkly and who want you to keep wiping the dirty glass of our hearts off so that we can see you ever more clearly, Father, we ask for that now. We pray that you would be with us as a people and be with us as individuals so that we, Lord, can open our eyes to see all that you're doing, open our eyes to see the way that you're working among us, and, and we can have the privilege of joining you in what you're doing. Help us, Lord, even as we go about our day today, to remember these things, and not just to remember them, but help us to be more and more aware, more and more practicing of all that you are to us in Christ. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.